guy by the name of John Owen. John Owen lived during the 1600s. He was uh, an amazing pastor, an amazing thinker. He wrote just volumes of books, volumes of books. Um, he, he actually wrote a seven-volume commentary on the letter to the Hebrews, seven volumes. It's unbelievable, so rich, so deep. He's an incredible pastor. He was an incredible thinker. In his book entitled Communion with God, Owen writes something that when I read it, it was burned indelibly on my heart because it resonated. I resonated so deeply with what he had to say. Now, I'm going to quote Owen, but I'm going to paraphrase because Owen can be a little dense. But this is what he said. He said, your greatest trouble and my greatest trouble, even as believers, is believing that the Father really loves us. And he goes on to say, oftentimes Christians walk around with deeply troubled hearts when it comes to what they think the Father thinks of them. They don't know the posture of his heart towards them. Think about that for a minute. If you're like me, you know that what Owen says is true. And here's the question that we have to ask. Why? Why is it so hard to believe that the Father could actually love us? Uh, Some of us might point to our earthly fathers, who even if we had the best father who ever walked the face of the earth, we had a father who's a sinner, which means sometimes he lost his temper. Sometimes he spoke harshly to you. Sometimes he punished you for something you didn't do. Sometimes he said something. He made a promise that he didn't keep. And that's the best father who ever walked the face of the earth. It's it's no wonder that we, we take our understandings and our experiences of our own fathers and we sort of project them onto God. Others might point to various difficulties that you've experienced, particularly as a Christian. Difficulties, hardships. Maybe maybe you walked through a terrible divorce. Or maybe somebody that you love struggles with mental illness. Or maybe you've had to bury somebody you love. Maybe you've had to endure disease, cancer. Maybe you've had a son or a daughter who have wreaked havoc in your house and walked away not only from you but from the Lord. And, and I could go on and on and on. And the question that we so oftentimes ask is, 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 is this, if God really loves me, Why does he allow these terrible things to happen to me? But there's another reason. I would actually suggest that it's it's an even deeper reason why we struggle to believe that God really loves us. And that's because 
we know ourselves. We know our apathy. We know our hard-heartedness. We know our bitterness. We know our hypocrisy. We know our secret sins. We know that we are guilty of things that we point out in other people. We are ashamed of the things that, that come to mind as we lay in bed at night. We are embarrassed by the things that come out of our mouths. I'll be honest with you. Mm. I have zero, zero problems standing before you this morning and saying to you that you are never beyond the reach of God's grace. That no matter what you've done, no matter how serious or heinous the sin or the sins are that you have committed, God's grace is infinitely better and it's infinitely bigger and it's infinitely more powerful than that. But for me, not so sure. So often I feel like I've crossed the line. I've, 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 I've moved beyond the point of no return. I believe with all my heart that God's grace is sufficient for you. But would God save me? I don't know. Now, why, why do we think this? Well, we know that God is holy, holy, holy. And that he finds sin insidious and pervasive and revolting, more insidious, pervasive, and revolting than any of us could ever imagine. We know that holiness and sinfulness are mutually exclusive. And since we are sinners, we think that God really wants to have nothing to do with us. Now, I want you to think about that. And I want you to think about what Jesus is telling us about the heart of God in our passage. Luke 15, if you have your Bibles, flip to Luke 15. And we're going to. We're going to hear the word of God. There it is. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. 
Or a woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise And go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And he came and he drew near to the house. And he heard the music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and he asked him about these what these things meant. And he said to him, Your your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you were always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The word of God. Would you pray with me? Father. Son and spirit, we desperately need to hear your voice today. We believe, but we struggle with unbelief. 
would you unstop our ears and would you speak? Would you allow us to taste and see that you are good and that you are gracious, that you are forgiving and you love us? We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Mm. Sorry, for, it's just, this passage kills me. It just slays me. That's not in my notes. <laughs> it just does. Luke tells us that the reason Jesus tells these three parables, these very familiar parables, is because the Pharisees and the scribes believe the very same thing I so often believe and I would imagine you so often believe as well, that God is nauseated by sin. That God wants absolutely nothing to do with sinners. That sinners are repulsive and revolting and that anyone who calls God Father shouldn't want to have anything to do with sinners either. Luke writes, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. Tax collectors and sinners were the first century equivalent, at least in the church, to 21st century pedophiles, porn stars, drug addicts, and, and, and strip bar club owners. What would you do what would, you, what would go through your mind if a busload of porn stars pulled up in Zion's parking lot and they walked into the sanctuary? What, what would you do if you were trying to set up a lunch with Jesus and he said, oh, I can't do lunch on Monday because I'm meeting with this group of pedophiles and we're going to have lunch together? What would you think of Jesus Thinking about the events of this last week, and I'm not trying to be political, what, would, what if the, the ISIS-K, a group of ISIS-K folks started hanging around, coming around? What would you think? If we're honest, we'd probably all have to say that there are sinners, like you and me, and then there are sinners like them. That, that there are certain people for whom there is really no hope. Who are simply beyond the reach of God's grace. But here's the thing. If you think that, my guess is that you probably often think to yourself, I, I, might, be, I might be among that group. What do we learn about the heart of God in these three stories? Well, we're going to spend the next number of weeks looking at Luke 15, so we're not going to dive deep into it this morning. I'm going to give you just a, a big, brief overview of what, what I see as the heart of God as it's laid out for us in this passage. So let's think about what Jesus teaches about, about the heart of God here in Luke 15. And it's, it's pretty simple. It's pretty clear. The first thing is this, God loves the lost. 
It's like, it's obvious, right? When I was in seminary, uh, one of the things that I was taught is that when something is repeated in a biblical text, you probably ought to pay attention to it. Well, one of the things that's repeated in our passage is that something is lost. In the first parable, the shepherd and the sheep, a shepherd loses one of his 100 sheep. In the second parable, the woman and her coins, the woman loses one of her 10 coins. And in the third parable, the father and the two sons, in verse 24, the father describes the younger son as what? He says, he was lost. Now, why do I point this out? Well, if Jesus had only told us the first parable, the parable of the sheep and the shepherds, we might conclude that because sheep aren't the smartest animal in the barn, that what it means to be lost is to be dim-witted. If Jesus had only told us the parable of the woman and her coins, we, we might conclude that to be lost is to be misplaced. But Jesus tells us three parables. And in the third parable, in the words of the father, Jesus describes the younger son as lost. And the younger son is not simply dim-witted. He is not simply misplaced. He is foolish. He is narcissistic. He is full of himself. And he is absolutely unloving. I think you could even say he's hateful in demanding his portion of the inheritance before the death of his father, he is in essence saying to his father, I wish you were dead. And in order for the father to give him his percentage of the inheritance, the father would have had to divide up his property and possessions and actually give his son those things. And in order for his son to cash in all of those things, he would have had to actually sell those things for money meaning that the father would have been absolutely humiliated in the community. And no doubt the father's bottom line next year would have been severely impacted. <clears throat> and when the son leaves, when he journeys, he goes off to a, a far country, he's, he's rejecting everything that his Jewish father had stood for and believed the son was not just walking away from his father. He was walking away from the God of his father. This is why when the son returns and the father is trying to explain to the older son why they're having this party, he says, this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. To be lost in Jesus' words is to be dead. Dead to his father dead to his family, dead to his community, and dead to his God. I think the Apostle Paul captures this perfectly when he writes in Ephesians chapter 2, you were, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Beloved, that is a picture of what it means to be lost, lost. 
that Jesus has painted for us. He is not airbrushing the kind of people that Jesus hangs out with. And he is not soft peddling sin. He is calling it what it is. But that's not all that Jesus says in this parable, is it? There's something else he repeats three times. In the parable of the shepherd and the lost sheep, when the sheep is found, what does the shepherd do and say? Verse 4, the shepherd rejoices. And in verse 5, he calls together his friends and neighbors and he says to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And in the second parable of the woman and her lost coin, when she finds that lost coin, what does she do and say? Verse 9, she calls together her friends and neighbors and says, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. And in the parable of the father and the two sons, while the father doesn't use the word rejoice, twice he says both first to his servants and second to his older son, we have to celebrate. We have to have a party that ends all parties. And Jesus doesn't leave it up to the Pharisees and the scribes or to you and me to understand, to make sense of what he's saying here. Because in verse 7 he says, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then again in verse 10 he says, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, as a quick aside, look at, look at verse 10. I've, I've always been struck by this, and it, it, it just blows my mind. Because what Jesus says here is, he, he, well, what he doesn't say here is, the angels rejoice over one sinner who repents. That's not what he says, is it? What does he say? He says, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, what does that mean? Well, what is before the angels of God? Or better yet, who is before the angels of God? It's God. It's, it's God is the one who is rejoicing. Is, is that how you think of God? God himself rejoices when one sinner repents. I'll confess to you, I, I really struggle to believe this. Again, not for you, but for me. I'm not saying that it's not true. It is. But just somehow, I, I grew up with this idea that, that, that God is this sort of stoic deity who's sitting on his throne up there. He, maybe he's got his arms crossed. He's made, tapping at least one foot kind of impatiently as he watches me screw up again and again and again. And yet... God is pictured in the shepherd who rejoices. God is pictured as the woman who finds her coin and rejoices and calls their friends and neighbors together to rejoice with him. And God is pictured as a father who says to his servants and to his son, we have to celebrate. Beloved, God is not some stoic deity who's frustrated with you and, and who reluctantly says, 
okay, just don't do it again. No, father, uh, no, the father in the, no, like the father in the third parable, he doesn't expect his son to come crawling back to him, groveling, apologizing for his hateful behavior, begging for forgiveness and promising to do better. He does, he does want his son to repent, which means nothing more than turning away from his sin and turning toward him. It probably means more than that. Paul's going to unpack that a little bit later on. In fact, he, if you think about this, the son starts a speech, right? Father, I've sinned against you, heaven and against you. And, and the father interrupts him. He won't even let him finish his prepared speech. God doesn't want us to grovel. God doesn't want us to beat ourselves up. He wants us to allow him to hug us and to kiss us. He wants us to allow him to rain down his good gifts of sonship on us. He wants us to accept his loving embrace. He wants to have a party for us and he wants to have a party with us. And he wants us to celebrate when someone else who was lost is found. When someone else who is dead, comes back to life. Is this how you think of God? Beloved, what you and I need to know, what you and I need to believe is that when God the Father sees us in our brokenness, when he sees us in our rebellion, when he sees us in our sin, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct is not to move away from us, but to move toward us. If you really believe this, how would it change the way you relate to God? How would it change the way you pray to God? It would, you, you would be honest with God. You would have no reason not to be honest with God. You would quit trying to impress God. You would quit trying to cover up or minimize or ignore your sin, downplay your sin. You would tell him the truth about yourself. If you really believe this, how would it change the way you think about other lost people who turn to God? You would welcome them. You would celebrate with them. You would rejoice with them. Beloved, this is the heart of our God. But there's something else I want you to see here this morning about the heart of God. God loves the lost. And second, God seeks the lost. In the first two parables, we see the character who is clearly supposed to represent God going in search of that which is lost. God is the shepherd who leaves his 99 sheep in search of the one lost sheep. God is pictured in the woman who, burning the midnight oil, tears her house apart in search of the lost coin. What is Jesus telling us? Jesus is telling us that it is not we who go searching for God, but God who comes searching for us. He is the initiator. He is the prime 
mover. <clears throat> if we're honest with ourselves, we're more like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden after they've eaten the forbidden fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They hear God walking toward them in the cool of the garden, and what do they do? They run. They hide. They try to sew together fig leaves to cover themselves up. And we do the same thing, don't we? We try to cover ourselves with our good deeds. We try to cover ourselves with our religious practices. We try to cover ourselves with our theological knowledge. And when the leaves fall off, and they always do, we, we turn to what, what one pastor calls comparative righteousness. We, we look around, and we see other people, and we say, oh, he's way worse than me. She, she's way worse than me. And here's the question you have to ask. Whose camp does that place us in? It places us squarely in the camp of the Pharisees, and the scribes, doesn't it? But this is the good news of the gospel. In the parable of the father and the two sons, the father doesn't just throw a party for the younger son. When he hears that his older son won't come into the party, that when he hears that his older son is stomping around in the fields, what does the father do? The father leaves the party and he goes out to his older son and he invites him into the party. In the same way that the father runs to the younger son as he approaches, he goes to the older son in the field and he implores him, he pleads with him, come to the party. Do you realize that when the older son says to the father, look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatty calf. You realize in that moment that this older son is just as lost as the younger son. He just never left home. And yet... What does the father do? What does he say to the older son? He says, son, oh, you were always with me. And all that is mine is yours. Beloved, what, 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 do you see what Jesus is doing here? It's, it's grace upon grace upon grace. He is holding the door open, not just for younger sons, but for older sons as well. He is holding the door open for the irreligious who are lost, and he is opening, he's holding the door open for the self-righteous who were lost. And he's saying, won't you join the celebration? Now maybe you think, hey Jeff, you didn't say anything about the third parable. Like, like, like nobody goes in search of the younger son, well, I love, I love how one of my seminary professors, Ed Clowney, addresses that question in a sermon that he preached a long time ago called Sharing the Father's Welcome. It's available on the internet. You can Google it and read it. Clowney says, 
that in the first two parables, Jesus, who is God incarnate, he is the second member of the Trinity. Jesus is represented by the shepherd and the woman who go in search of the lost sheep and the lost coin. But in the third parable, Jesus takes himself out of the story and he places in the story the Pharisees and the scribes. It was the older brother who would have been responsible to go after the younger brother. But like the Pharisees and the scribes, the older brother refused to go. And he harbored a deep, deep resentment when the younger son returned and, and, and was received by the father. Clowney writes this, he says, The older brother is doing just what the Pharisees and the scribes were doing, refusing to associate with sinners. But Jesus is doing just the opposite. He understands his father's heart of mercy. And he is not willing to go in with, uh, he is not only willing to go in with sinners to heaven's feast, far more. He has come to look for sinners where they are. He has come to seek and to save the lost. As we learn later in the Gospel of Luke, the price that Jesus paid to seek and save the lost was his own life. He laid down his life. As the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, on the cross for our sakes, he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what we just sang. How deep the Father's love, I'm going to cry, how deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. That's you, that's me. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turned his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon the cross, his, my sins upon his shoulder. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sins that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Beloved, if we forget Jesus... We will never grasp the full measure of the Father's love for us. Our Heavenly Father does not ignore, He does not minimize, He does not overlook or dismiss our sin. He is holy, 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 and the wages of sin is death. And the amazing grace of God in Jesus is that he not only loves the lost, he not only seeks the lost, but that he died for the lost, for those who turn away from their sin and look to him. Unlike the older brother in the parable, Jesus not only comes to the feast, eating with tax collectors and sinners and with people like you and people like me, but he spreads the feast of his body in blood, and he invites us this morning to come to the table and celebrate 
with him. You realize that's what we do every Sunday. We come to his table and we celebrate with him. There is more joy before the angels in heaven when one person repents than than 99 people who don't. Would you pray with me? And then we're going to come to the table and celebrate. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these stories. Thank you for the way you expose our hearts. You expose our unbelief. You expose our self-righteousness. You expose our waywardness. But you don't just expose us, but you cover us with Jesus. You cover us by his blood. Oh, Father, we believe. Help us overcome our unbelief. Lord, as we come to your table this morning, I pray that you would take these ordinary elements, this bread and this wine, and that you would use it to persuade us, to convince us that your promise of grace to all of those who look to you in faith, your promise is as real as this bread and as this wine. I pray that you would feed us. I pray that you would change us. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.